Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Visit RCAT.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. Joining me today is Courtney Strong, AIA, CSI, CDT, Associate Principal from LSW Architects in Vancouver, Washington. Courtney is a highly creative, organized, self-motivated team member with strong technical skills developed from two decades of experience. She has experience handling large projects with a particular focus on education and has a strong understanding of the design process from pre-design through construction, helping her to focus on the details while maintaining sight of the big picture. The project we are going to talk about today is the Mountain View High School replacement in Vancouver, Washington. The design for Mountain View High School's new 275,000-square-foot building prioritizes visibility, safety, and student empowerment. To serve and consider all student needs and teaching-slash-learning modalities, the building includes a rich variety of spatial typologies and environments. The intent is to create learning options that invite and empower students to participate and collaborate with one another and extend this across all spaces. For a school of its size and scope, its unifying theme is a sense of closeness and camaraderie that defines the daily student-teacher experience. From the onset, the team at LSW worked closely with staff, students, and community representatives to harness their insight in hopes of understanding what makes Mountain View a unique place to learn. During this process, an existing strong cultural theme emerged, Thunder Family, capturing the way students and staff at Mountain View interact with and treat one another and how the community rallies behind the school. 
it's no surprise that Thunder Family became a strong reference point for the design. With such a large campus, a key objective was to make the school's multifaceted learning environments visible and accessible to students. The goal was to build a sense of unity and personalization to the school by breaking its scale down into connected areas. You can check out our podcast landing page for this episode to see pictures and additional details about this project at rcat.com slash podcast. Courtney, my friend, welcome to Detailed. How are you doing today? I'm great, Sharice. Thanks. I, I appreciate you being here. You don't, I'm excited to have all of our listeners hear from somebody I really respect a lot. A little fun fact for the listeners, the last firm that I worked for was LSW Architects, where Courtney is now. And Courtney was directly responsible for me going to work at that firm. Um, I had gotten laid off from my firm before that. And she was like, you better call Sharice because she's not going to be unemployed for long. <laughs> and we were, we got to work together for a couple of years. So she is not only an amazing architect, but she is one of my closest friends, love her to death. So I'm so excited to have, have her here today. We've known each other for years. I also have to say that LSW Architects is a fantastic, and I don't say this about just anybody, and everybody knows that, is a fantastic and very unique firm. They really truly put their heart and soul into their projects in some unique ways I have never seen at any other firm that I've worked for, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But it was an amazing experience working there, and I will always, they all know that that's my LSW family. They will always be my family. So Courtney, let's get down to business. I like to start off with just breaking the ice a little bit. What is the single best piece of advice you have ever been given? Uh, I always felt like I had confidence, but inexperienced when I was a younger architect. And I think for me, one of the things that was most helpful in overcoming that insecurity was that it's really okay to say, I don't know what I'm, you know, what you're asking, or I'm unsure and that I need to review it and I need to get back to you. And it's completely acceptable to not know everything all the time. And to be honest about that, I think it makes me a better person and it makes me a better teammate. I don't think you even know how much I love that answer. <laughs> you know, I do a lot with young professionals in my CDT class. And the one thing I hear over and over and over again is, I didn't know how to do this, but I'm intimidated by my my boss, or I'm afraid to ask the question. If I'm your boss and you come ask me the question, you're the one I'm promoting next. That says you want to get it right. So I love that answer. That's a great, great answer. Um, let's talk about the high school, Mountain View High School in Vancouver, correct? Yep, East Vancouver. What's the story behind this project? What was the need? What made them go this this direction for this new high school? Mountain View is part of Evergreen Public School District, and they have four high schools in the district. The original Mountain View was built in the early 80s. It was the second high school for the district, and LSW did it the first time. So one of many projects that this office has done in our community, the design at the time, you know, obviously made sense, but in current technology and accessibility and our seismic and 
really, in general, it was an open campus style multi-building ground floor construction. And it really lacked a lot of basic safety. The main office or main entry to the building was kind of in the center of all the buildings. So you'd come up to the site and wouldn't even know where to begin to look for the front door. So there were a lot of functional as well as maintenance reasons for the replacement of that high school. And so it was part of the 2018 bond that the district approved. And it was the largest portion of that bond, which was the largest in Washington history. I know that, you know, for any school, there's so much planning that goes into before you ever, so to speak, put pen to paper. It's got its own special, it's its own special animal. But LSW is a little unique in how it plans and implements its projects. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So what I think you're alluding to is our process for our Colby certification test and our print a motivation test. And both of these are indicators of how individuals think and work and act and what really motivates them. So it's a simple kind of questionnaire thing. And it, each person's print and Colby are different. And so by learning or understanding how you relate or interact with people through the Colby and really what is the main motivator for an individual naturally. These are all things that are instinctual in each one of us. So using the Colby and print are intentional ways of looking at ways in which we can build teams that work cohesively together, that support each other like you know, one person may be the, the brainstormer versus the other person is neck deep in the facts and balancing those two personalities or ways in which to look at things. We not only understand each other better, but we can achieve things and really work on our what we call our unique abilities. Our unique abilities are kind of um, a way in which we look at when we're in our creative flow and doing the best work we can possibly do, we are happy and feel like we're achieving things and that it's life-giving work and it's not a, something that's a task that just has to be done or something that is, feels like, oh, I just got to get through this and I don't want to do it. So ideally, by knowing those types of things about our teammates, we really can synergize who's doing what and why we work together as a team effectively. Remind me again, what project delivery? Was this a construction CMGC kind of job? In Washington, it's GCCM. GCCM. And it, yes. So the GCCM process is an approved process by the state here in Washington. Talk to me about what does this building look like? What kind of spaces do you have in this building? You know, what does the site look like? The building is 275,000 square feet. It fluctuates between two and three stories, depending on which wing you're in. It sits on a 41-acre site that has housed Mountain View, the original building. So we replaced the building on the same site that the current building was on. The new building sits kind of in two portions. There is a north half of the building and the south half of the building. And one of the things I mentioned about the old Mountain View was the inability to really see the main entry. So main entry is 
front and foremost visible from the street now. So it really makes a much more welcoming entry into the building and it bisects at that point at the entrance. You, When you walk in, you're flanked by administration. So we've got two stories of administration on either side and it leads you right into the heart of the school, the commons. The commons then branches out into two primary wings. To the north is the athletic wing. So all of our gyms and support spaces for the athletic department. And then to the west is our performing arts. So across the commons, you see the auditorium from the main entry and the performing arts classrooms surround that. Sitting above the commons on our second story in our large vaulted space is our library. So again, making the commons in the north half of the building our public face All of the community is welcome in that portion of the building for various functions. So it really becomes the heart and soul of the school. The north half of the building is then connected to the south half of the building by what we call the loop. So envision an oval that the north portion is the commons and it circulates down and around through each of the classroom wings. And in the center of that loop, is the internal courtyard. So one of the things I also mentioned was the old school being an open campus, having that outdoor connection was really important. So that was an intentional part of laying out the spaces around this new secured outdoor space that the students could use. And that courtyard is amazing. It's already been used for our ribbon cutting and various daily functions. It's so lively. It has all sorts of amenities, everything from a little pre-K play area for the child development class to quiet nooks for um, individuals to work. There's a greenhouse for the floral and horticulture program. Um, So it's very intentionally connected indoor-outdoor spaces. Additionally, spaces within the building. We have various CTE programs in addition to our general classrooms. We teach a culinary class in our nutrition lab. We have a wood shop, a metal shop, fine arts, floral lab, again for our floral and horticulture classes, and then obviously an entire science wing. I'm I'm glad to hear that wood shops and metal shops and that kind of thing are coming back now that the train has hit the wall and we have nobody in skilled trades. Yeah. I remember when they started taking them out of the schools. Absolutely. Uh, you know, 20 years ago. And I said, this is a mistake. It's like, what are you doing? You have to have options for those people that need a different path. We still have those classrooms. Um, we intentionally actually located all of our tech classrooms in the same wing of the building as the labs, the shop spaces. So they cross collaborate between those tech classrooms and the shop spaces intentionally. Well, and, and they should, just the way our industry is going. Yeah. So much technology, you know, now than we had before. But um, yeah, I just, I love to hear that. So, In designing this, what were some of the bigger challenges that you faced? Two things have popped to mind. As I mentioned, we were a sprawling one-story campus, and being replaced on the same site, we only had a certain footprint that we could build in order to maintain that existing building while constructing the new. And so naturally, it became a two-story and then a three-story structure. And Really having intention about 
the verticality of the building for a campus and a school community that wasn't used to that style was interesting. So there's a lot of really intentional stuff around the design of the circulation and making sure because, you know, many high schools, you see passing time and it becomes like the log jam of students trying to get from one class to another in a small period of time. And we, I think, did a really amazing job of creating circulation and patterning through that loop connection and just circulation placement vertically that allows for the students to still have those passing time interactions that they would get going in and out of the buildings between buildings last time or in the old school that they still have in the new structure. So that to me has been super successful. In addition to the fact that the main entry corner of the building was the closest from a construction standpoint to the old building, I want to say we had less than 50 feet between the two structures. And we were fortunate to have, like we said, the GC on board with the project, being that we were a GCCM delivery early. So those site logistics and access logistics were all really well thought out. To understand more about the management of the project, we spoke with Ali Abazadigan, Senior Project Manager at RNC Management Group. Now, the first semester was uh, obviously COVID, so not as much action, mostly just teachers. But the last semester before we tore down the school, it was a fully functioning high school while we were still finishing the new building. And now we're basically swapping. So where the new building is, that's where the fields used to be. And we've demoed the old building, and that's where the parking lot and the fields are going to be. So a lot of coordination, logistics, working with not only the city, but the community, neighbors, some of the adjacent neighbors just throughout the project, whether it was dust control or privacy, um, light pollution, or just how they wanted the fencing to look at the end product. So we provided them information on what we were going to do, and they provided feedback, and then we ended up you know, somewhere in the middle on upgrading fencing and putting slats and creating privacy and safety for both sides. What were some of the most difficult pieces and parts on this building to detail? I had an amazing team and we definitely attacked a lot of that stuff early in the design. So the main structure of the north half of the building is tilt construction, which if anyone's ever done concrete tilt construction for warehouses or large-scale industrial type projects, it's a wonderful, easy, goes up fast. But for schools, it was definitely a bit more complex. While we had big box structures in our gyms and auditorium, making them work from a design standpoint, laydown um, was one of the main things. Again, having Skanska on board to work through the logistics of layout or the casting beds for those, figuring out crane pathways, again, with the crane and the school adjacent, and then actually tilting them all in place. It was like a well-oiled machine when we got to it, but there took a lot of coordination. And one of the other things I think that having done that with schools was that the amount of coordination for everything that has to go into those tilt walls, every device had to be located during the tilt 
process, the shop drawing process. So making sure that every outlet, every AV, every embed structurally, there were so many people pushing and pulling on what needed to be where in those tilt panels that it was really amazing that we had so few issues when it came to putting them up that I'm super proud of the team for doing because it was certainly something new for us in school construction. I'm, I'm trying to think about, okay, how's, how are all the layers of the wall? What's going on here for, you know, the insulation or weather barriers and cladding? So describe for me a wall assembly in this building. The tilt is the primary structure and the interior face of the building. On the tilt from an exterior standpoint, it's either we've done sheet or fluid applied waterproofing, your continuous insulation above that, and then depending on the cladding material, obviously, we we have masonry and metal panels on this particular project. So airspace cavity with your, your brick anchors and then your veneer of either CMU or, or brick. We had a mix of both. And then clip system, we used an isolated clip system for the metal panel system. All thermally broken, all continuous insulation and meat energy code, but all of that happens from the, the concrete out. And I will say one thing, I think for, for, for me, the reason we've pushed to tilt construction in the past, a lot of our big box stuff would have been masonry, just straight either ground faced exposed CMU or stud over traditional standard CMU. And unfortunately, it feels like it's one of the industry things in our area where labor has become a commodity that's driving that decision to change. When we did the analysis initially, it was a three-month schedule advantage on the theater to use the concrete tilt-up. To understand more about the construction process, we also spoke with Trevor Wyckoff, Vice President, Account Manager at Skanska USA Building, Inc. On Mountain View, we made a decision to use concrete tilt-up at the theater and the gymnasium. The theater is unique just because it's such a tall structure and there are not very many theaters in the Pacific Northwest that are constructed using a concrete tilt-up. When we proposed that, you know, we saw a cost and schedule advantage to that. And so that's why we proposed it. We had to go across the nation and we found examples back east where theaters were designed with tilt-up and they were successful. I mean, our fly loft for the auditorium was 55 feet high. The manual labor of installing CMU in those types of applications, it was an unknown and a risk that the district felt like the contractor's suggestion to use tilt in lieu of it made sense in this particular case. Talk to me a little bit about the products that you used in the school. One of the the most important parts about the project was really feeling welcomed and that wow factor when you walk in the building. And for us, being it that it was programmably driven to be a two-story space, we really wanted to vault that space. So we have both at the main entry and in the commons, these beautiful two-story vaulted atrium spaces. And one of the decisions from the district as a standard across all of their schools is that commons, corridors, public spaces be a polished concrete floor. 
So the checkerboard concrete is something we do on all the evergreen projects that we manage because we value the floor and its aesthetic and performance. That basically exposed aggregate concrete floor that we do just has a really long life to it. It looks really good and there's very little to no maintenance versus like a VCT. Not only does VCT get replaced, VCT can get scuffed. And then every year, at least once, if not multiple times, the custodial staff is waxing VCT. So there's an actual pretty decent labor cost to maintaining that. Um, if they don't do that, it just gets tore up pretty quickly, especially with student high traffic use. So concrete doesn't have any of those issues. You don't need to wax it. You just basically need to clean it. It's going to retain its shine and doesn't have a big maintenance cost for a custodial or the district in the future. So we prefer to spend a little bit more money up front to get that right, make sure there's less cracking. And the checkerboarding is so you minimize the concrete. Obviously, you can't eliminate all cracking in concrete, but it definitely helps to minimize it because there's individual pores on separate days and they're all kind of interconnected. It was interesting for us from a construction standpoint they were really small areas i think most of them were i want to say 10 foot by 10 foot or 10 foot by 12 foot and they were checkerboarded so that you were never pouring one immediately adjacent another because of the shrinkage you know a two by six normally has a radius edge to it but if we were to use that like normal formwork and pour the slab to it there would be a little lip on the concrete that potentially could crack and so the design required us to rip that two by six down so that that was a 90 degree angle where we were pouring to so that when we stripped that and we had to wait three to seven days before we could strip it so that we wouldn't fracture the edges of the concrete so then we would strip that and it would be a, a really crisp 90 degree angle that we could pour up against because then after the two slabs were poured adjacent one another, that was an extremely tight joint. And because the first slab had already started to cure and shrink, that joint won't open up. After all that pouring is done, you take a diamond saw and cut that joint to provide some relief there. And it creates a really crisp separation. And then it gets a sealant put in there. Like an, I think it's an epoxy sealant that the polisher does when he goes in and polishes and then he puts in that joint and grinds it down. And because they're poured independently, any expansion and contraction is going to happen at that joint. And that sequencing, though, of the checkerboarding, it elongated the schedule for our concrete slab pouring. And also because of the tilt-up concrete, structures that we had it just made us have to really think through how we were going to go and pour these concrete slabs when a lot of times we don't have the concrete tilt up erected in place until later in the project typically we would pour as much concrete slab as possible at some point we would tilt up the walls for those structures and then there's a little pour back strip to tie the walls into the slab. And the way that it was designed was just different on this project. And it required all of the checkerboarding first. And then we tilted up the walls 
and then we poured that strip back and then that strip even had to be checkerboarded to make sure that we had small portions of the slab to minimize the cracking. So naturally, large volume, hard surfaces, acoustics immediately becomes a super big concern. And then you throw almost 2,000 high schoolers into the commons and you can imagine how loud that space might get. So acoustics being uh, one of the things that drove some of the design, one of the products that we had um, used on another project for the district is a gypsorb drywall, and it's a perforated acoustic product. And we used that in the ceiling application in order to get more acoustic instead of having more unfriendly acoustic surfaces in that area. But I will say that we had some lessons learned. In the prior project, they used a patterning that was a more circular, uh, random, spread out pattern. And we opted for, for various reasons on the design to go with a linear square pattern. Getting that product, the joints were a special detail because the perforation doesn't allow you to mud a joint like a typical drywall product is. It's a caulked joint. It's a specialized joint so that you maintain that perforation within, I think it's only like a quarter inch. There, It's a small, you know, space. So every device, every light, every seam on those ceilings had to be coordinated through the shop drawing process. It looks amazing. It adds like such a beautiful texture to the ceiling that is playful and fun rather than just a solid dipboard and really just makes that space feel like it is not an echo chamber. So it was a definite learning curve to using that product, but I definitely think that's one of the products that I've experienced on this project that we'll go forward using in the future for other projects. How did construction go? Did you hit any roadblocks that you had to work through with the team or pivot a decision or? I will say we did really have a top tier team as far as, in addition to the general contractor, Skanska being on board early. Once they were on board, we also brought in the EC and MC, the electrical contractor and mechanical contractor. So we brought on board Prairie Electric and Apollo Mechanical, and they were part of the design team from design development through the project. Um, So having those during the process has been really fantastic. But we hit COVID. I think we were at about just over 50%. We had turned in our 50% CDs for the project. So when we all left in March of 2020, we were trying to finish the design. There were a lot of unknowns between finishing design and actually breaking ground that this team was incredibly fortunate to navigate so successfully that I feel like we we won the lottery because so many projects were being put on hold. So many projects were not getting bids during bidding periods. And we made some really great decisions as a team. We shifted. We were going to do an early release package of the structure. We ended up holding that and only doing earthwork early. It set us up to start the project about three and a half months late. 
And still we had to meet. I mean, once we started down the road, we were going to tear down the building and we needed a new high school. So there was no making up those three months in the process. We had to make decisions quickly and effectively and move forward. And the team really did a great job of doing that in a time of a lot of unknowns. So public work is a different animal. And I have encountered a lot of people who have never worked on a public project. Then they're surprised when you start telling them, wait, you can't do that. You got all these extra special rules you have to follow and all these extra things you have to put in your documents that take a lot of time. But talking to a young professional or talking to another professional who did never done public work before, like top three things you would tell them if they're saying, I'm doing a public project, I've never done public work before. What are like the three first three things you tell me I need to be concerned about or I need to be aware of? So the first thing and the most important thing is to educate yourself on what is your delivery method because a design bid build project versus a GCCM or a design bill, a true design build or an integrated product, they all come at you differently and have different rules. So first thing is to just know what method of delivery the project is going to be. Second is to know what those rules are. And for me, I've taken both the CSI CDT class. Thank you for classes, Sharice. I have, I'm one of her former students, successfully passed. But I also have taken the AGC's Washington State class on the GCCM process. And having that base knowledge really helps you understand rules and things that are specific to Washington State. Um, and I know that those are offered elsewhere. And I'm currently in the process of getting my DBIA certification. So nice. we can begin to take on projects in that delivery method. Other things to think about is, is when you publicly bid a project, fairness matters. So I mentioned earlier, you can't pre-select certain products or manufacturers or subcontractors. That is a huge no-no from the design side, you certainly can get design assist and consult. And we do lean on a lot of our really amazing product reps around here for assistance in those things. But I think being honest with them and upfront, like letting them know, yes, we want to spec your product, but ultimately we have to be competitive in the bidding market, not only for the rules and regulations, but simply just competitive bidding to get the best price for the owner is an important part of the coordination between design and specifications and the delivery method. So pick one thing, number one lesson learned from this, that you will be more efficient or you'll tackle it in a different way, or you'll know something in advance. So you'll take a different road on the next project because of something you learned on this one. I think it's less about a specific problem or challenge that came up during the project. But I think for me, the biggest lesson learned that I'll take away from this project is intentionally showing up, being honest, and trusting those that you work with. We certainly did not have a perfect project, but when things arose, 
the team communicated effectively. We were honest about not hiding like, oh, we're just going to kind of do it this way and not do it the way it's supposed to or the way it was really designed or, you know, kind of fudge it a little bit. It always felt like if there was really an issue and we wanted to get it right, everyone was truthful about what needed to get done. And then we listened to each other like, this is what I ultimately want. So how can we achieve that? Those types of interactions were one of the best teams I've ever worked with. I, and I don't say that lightly. It makes it actually hard for me to think about what were some, I mean, we certainly had a few, like I said, but nothing that like, oh God, this is so well, that, bad. And that's again, testament to the project, you know, because almost everybody you ever ask about any project, the minute you say, what's your lesson learned? Well, I'll tell you right off the bat, that's the, the, you know, they'll have some big thing that popped up that maybe they're still having nightmares over. So it's nice to hear that overall, you don't have anything that jumps out at you. No, yeah. At least you get to sleep at night. So let's get down to our last couple questions. You've done a lot of CA and out there working with the contractors and solving problems and getting all the stuff you have to process. In general, what would be your one big thing that you see people doing over and over again from project to project that causes strife? It's really about people not doing CA. For me, CA is where good designers become great. It is the place where you have to answer all of the RFIs to the questions and details you didn't think about the first time. All the submittals, you learn your products, you learn your specs, you learn the value of those documents and how much you rely on them. You learn construction cost estimating and budgeting through pay-up reviews and change order reviews and dealing with that side of the process in CA. You learn schedule and sequencing, like physically being able to understand how a contractor puts together a building. That knowledge is invaluable. And I don't think every firm gives everybody the opportunity to do CA. And a lot of people are afraid to do CA. And thank you to my one of my first firms, CETA. They gave me a nice big push into CA. And it's really been an invaluable part of doing my job great. And the reason which I like my job, I'm going to say this, I think I'm pretty good at it. And I think others would just, a lot of the stuff that we we don't understand about how other trades work and how we could work better as a team is is figured out in CA. Just take a small project, a tenant improvement, a small remodel, something that would get you that little bit of foot in the door. It's like pulling the curtains back and seeing how you can do better. I, I love that answer. It's one of the best ones I've heard so far. Final question. What is your world domination statement, personal or professional, what mark is Courtney Strong going to leave on this world? Do what you love and have fun doing it. Because the only way you're going to dominate and be successful for your own self or for your work is as if you're having a good time doing what you're doing. And I'm a complete extrovert and I love doing what I do. And I love doing it with the people I love doing it with. So thank you for being my friend and total world domination is coming. Well, it's always been coming and you do, you do. I, I've worked with you. 
so I know exactly how you live your life because we're also friends. And you do put your heart and soul into your work and you do love what you do and you do, you put a different level and piece and part of yourself into the world when you approach it that way. I think you're a pretty amazing human and I really, really appreciate you taking time out of, I know it's been insane all summer for you getting this high school open and here I am, but I want to interview you right now. I don't want to wait. And, and you accommodated me and I appreciate that. I owe you cocktails. Happy Ooh. hours on me next time we go. Yeah. We're due soon, but thank you again. I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity to share and I appreciate the opportunity to mentor and help others. And I think that's the most amazing thing about what you're trying to share with the rest of us is we all could learn a little bit more from each other. You know, we could all talk a little bit more Yep. and collaborate and communicate and get out of our box and figure out, I like to say how the other half lives, but it's a game changer. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, Visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, rcat has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try rcat and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit rcat.com. That's A R C A T.com. If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project. <laughs>